the first ever show of Tommy Talks with BG the GOAT. How are you, mate? Tom, it is a pleasure to be your first guest on Tommy Talks. <laughs> I am excited. It's been most anticipated. We've been talking about this for 18 months and your dream finally has been realised. Thanks, mate. It has. It's been, we've come a long way since the Super Bowl party at the uh, Sporting Globe. I knew when I met you there that good things are going to happen and uh, that's exactly what's happening. And, mate, we're gonna, um, we've got a fair story to tell you today and uh, I thought I'd start with the AFL career, 219 games for the Cats, one of the biggest shoes we've ever seen, um, and then into NFL. Talk us through the transition from AFL to NFL. Well, Tommy, um, I've got to say, when I was a kid, the only thing I knew about the NFL was the Super Bowl. It's all you ever really heard about. Don Lane was on the ABC. He used to talk a little bit of NFL for the people that, you know, were interested in it. But for me as a kid, I just wanted to grow up and play in AFL. My grandfather played for South Melbourne. Um, my dad was on a couple of lists, never played a game, but, you know, I just grew up wanting to play AFL. It wasn't probably until I was 16 that I realised that I was a bit of a bigger kid than the other guys at school, uh, but didn't really think much of it until I got the opportunity at Geelong, got drafted. Um, early in my career, I was kicking out from fullback and Blighty was coaching and Malcolm Blight loved the torpedo. He's, one of his um, strengths as a player was kicking a tour, as we know. So he encouraged players to do that. And so I practiced them and we used to warm up together. I was only a young bloke. He went one in, me out the other. That was our warm-up, kicking 70-metre barrels. It was great. Uh, but in 95, he was coach and he gave me the licence to kick out from fullback and licence to kick a talk. But if I got onto the first one, I could kick them all day. <laughs> and if I shanked it, well, that was it. I had to put it to bed for the rest of the day. But... Eventually, the opposition teams worked it out and they set up their zones deeper. And, but we became the best team to get the ball across centre from a kick-in by kicking short and getting our way through it. So it was a bit of a lost art there, but it was 97 when some NFL scouts were in Melbourne. So Eric Mangini, who was a long-term coach, coach. Um, a number of clubs, but he's been around the NFL a long, long time. His brother worked in Melbourne. So Eric came out to spend a year with him and he was coaching the uh, local uh, gridiron team out here. While he was out here, he had a look at the AFL and thought which athletes would be bringing across to the States. But this was like 97, so I was only 24, just made the State of Origin squad, like just embarking on my own career when we got the knock on the door saying, do you want to work out for the New York Jets? So I did. Um, worked out at Leopold Football Club um, on a Wednesday before big game against Collingwood at the G on the Saturday and showed enough for them to offer me a contract there and then. But, you know, I, I was um, pretty much wanting to play my career out. It's a long, only a young bloke living the dream. But Darren Bennett was in the NFL at the same at that time, so I followed him a bit, just thinking one day I might give it a shot. And that came at the end of 2004 when I was out of contract and um, kept in contact with Eric, who was at the Patriots at that point. 
and brought me in for a workout. Had a workout of the Patriots, the Jets, the Giants, and then the Minnesota Vikings, where Darren was at the time. And uh, there were no guarantees, but the opportunity to use my skill, yeah, in football, in another sport, in another country, um, probably the so the seed was sowed in '97. So it was probably seven or eight years in the making. Um, had no idea what I was getting myself in for. It was a bit. Um, daunting at the time because a lot of people couldn't understand the decision I made, but especially from Geelong's perspective. But the majority of the AFL world just said, mate, go for it. You'll kill it. You'll have a time of your life. So a fair bit of support and family support. And uh, and then I guess it culminated into an off-season learning how to punt an NFL ball. Yeah. And that was a real challenge because it was a completely different technique. You had to get rid of the ball. You only have the ball in your hand for 1.2 seconds yeah. to be able to launch the ball. So different shaped ball, did different things in the air. You had 11 guys, tanks running towards you, trying to kill you every time you got <laughs> the ball in your hand and you had to trust the guys protecting you. So that's why you had to get it off so quick. But it took some time to adjust. There's no doubt about that. But in training camp, um, I was up against a, a veteran who they brought in from another team who was favoured to win the job. But because the Jets were so good the year before, during training camp, the only real competition in camp was at Punter, so it got a lot of airplay, a lot of media coverage. So every day there were reports in the New York Times and New York Daily about the punting competition. Yeah. Who kicked what, what the hang time was, who won the day, who's in front. <laughs> that was like you know, a bit of a circus. But I worked hard on both my punting and my holding for the kicker and um, in the end was lucky enough and good enough and the coaches put the trust in me to, to do the job. So that's where my NFL career started. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. At what point do they get you in? Because I read an article the other day where one of the um, New England Patriots punters just rolled in. They didn't even say that he made it. Uh, he was expecting to get a call to say he was cut. So he just rolled up and it was business as usual. He didn't get cut. So what, what's the process like, I guess, when they're making the cuts? You know something's coming. You're going to get told you're in or you're out. Talk us through that day. Yeah, well, I, I experienced it on a couple of different fronts. So generally in camp, at the start of camp, there's 90 players on the roster. And at the end of camp, they cut it down to 53 and then they sign the practice squad back. But if generally teams will have a punter that's an incumbent and they'll bring in some competition. But if the punter that's on the roster already is top 10, long-term contract, they'll bring in a kid from college just to take some reps during camp to take the edge off so that the incumbent punter's not working overtime every single day. But I was in a situation in the Jets where it was a pure competition. It was head-to-head. And... And that brought out the best in me because I remember the day when at first, when the coaches basically said, right, it's on, boys. You're going to punt and you can continue to punt if your punts are over five seconds. But as soon as one drops below five seconds, the next guy's in. Yeah. And it was like, game on, bitches. <laughs> we are on. So that was about the second week in camp. But what happened that year was... 
at the end of camp, so the cuts, it was cut from 90 to 80, 80 to 72, 72 to 64, and there was still two punts. So we were one of the last decisions made. We broke from camp. I took my wife out to the movies because we, you know, you're away in camp for the month. And I got out of the movie, turned my phone on, and there was a message from a New York Times reporter who we got quite friendly with. Like she was telling our story, our journey from Australia. And she called and said, I just want to congratulate you on winning the job as the starting punter uh, in the, at the New York Jet. That's massive. So this was on like at six, seven o'clock on a, you know, Monday night. I've gone to the club the next morning for training thinking that there was going to be red carpets and bells and whistles and press conferences and walked in. The other guy's locker was cleaned out. All my stuff was there. It was like business as usual. No one batted an eyelid. So we got into the meeting and the coach said, boys, here's the 53 that we're going with. Don't know how long you're all going to be together because we make changes every week. (laughs) But congratulations, you're all going to start week one of this NFL season. So it was like nothing I'd experienced before in the AFL when you sign a contract or you get an extension. or <clears throat> It was so different to doing things. But I've experienced it the other way too where I've just been cut. Mm. You know, like it's such a brutal industry that – and I didn't know it to begin with when I first signed – or first signed up to go over there. And they can cut you any day, day or night, um, based on performance, based on money, based on someone else that they think is better than you that's out there. Like, there's no development. There's no longevity, unless you're a superstar, yeah. unless you're in the top 3% of the NFL. But for everybody else, it's on minimum wage. It's a dime a dozen. And... I'll talk about 2008 in a minute, but we'll revisit how I won the job there and how the guy before me got cut. Like, it's just a fascinating... You don't really truly understand it until you're in it, where any single day you could walk into work thinking, I'm going to get a tap on the shoulder today, or any any practice after a bad session, just be told, shower up, son. There'll be a van waiting for you to take Yeah, I'll find that. I find that unbelievable. And even, have you seen like wide receivers or running backs or anyone else obviously be cut and there's a, you know, there's this good camaraderie there, good, they're all good close teammates and the other player that's actually staying is filthy and blown up or it's just kind of business as usual and they expect it? Complete business as usual. They understand the business when they get into it. And it took me a little while, while to learn that. But it's, it's, I mean, Bill Belichick said it best. Do your job and trust the guy next to you is going to do his because you can't there's no time to worry about anyone else and what they're doing it's it's an individual sport which is what makes the team great because everyone is so damn good at what they do yeah and i think the number of changes that teams make i mean a lot of it's injury based because if i mean it's a death knell if you get injured in the nfl because as soon as you miss a game or two and you're not in the top echelon or guaranteed starter, they will just get you healthy and cut you because while you're on the sidelines, someone else has shown glimpses that they're going to be better than you 
especially if they're cheaper than you. So it's yeah, it's a true it's a true business, unlike the AFL. But I think they're getting a little closer. The AFL is becoming a little more like the NFL in the way we see the game and the drafting and free agent. But there's some parts of the NFL, especially with their rule changes, uh, looking after uh, ex-players, um, not so much from a contract perspective because contracts are only worth the guaranteed money that are in them. Mm. And for 90% of NFL players, the, the guaranteed money is nothing really compared to what the top end earn. Yeah, it's, it's all about guaranteed and they're starting to go that way more and more as you can see the contracts. Well, um, let's dive into the Jets. I've, uh, I've, got, I've had a good look and the first game's against the Chiefs at Arrowhead. Talk us through the emotions and the mentality. How nervous were you heading into your first game and how much press was there from Australia as well? Yeah, the press was um, very kind, very supportive, um, very keen to see how I went. Uh, obviously, Darren before probably didn't get as much fanfare, um, and maybe that was because of where he landed in um, San Diego. But New York was a massive buzz just to live in New York, just to um, experience that. I mean, our experience as a family would have been so much different if I had landed in Cleveland or Buffalo or somewhere like that. But but New York was look, it was it was. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. But what that training camp, once I won the job, the kicker that year, Mike Nugent, was drafted from Ohio State in the second round, which is really high for a kicker. And we created a really strong relationship. He ends up being the godfather of Jack, who was born in New York, my son. But he was captain of Ohio State as a kicker. And because of my history and... um, experience in the AFL and Captain Geelong for three years, we found that generally specialists, punters and kickers, were treated like like just, you know, not part of the team. Yeah. Right? They just hung out on the sideline. They practiced, trained separately. They only came on when, you know, three or four times a game. Like they weren't an essential part of the team. So Nuge and I made a pact that we're going to earn these guys respect and trust. We're going to train hard. We're going to train with them and we're going to do everything that they do so that we know when we go out on the field with them that they know who they're working with. So that was building that camaraderie. And it was very easy as an Australian to have an effect on those guys because they loved it. They loved the accent. They loved the stories. Like they ate everything up. Like I'd, I'd tell them that I used to ride a kangaroo to school. <laughs> they believe me. That first game, though, leading into the game, because the college, coming out of college, they're all mates. So the punt returner for the Chiefs was telling all my teammates that he's going to run my first punt back to the house. <laughs> was all was all going on, but I was nervous as hell. Like I was remember it vividly. Like if you've ever been to Arrowhead Stadium. It's the loudest stadium in the NFL. Those fans are crazy. But it was a – the sun was coming in and it was just – I'll never forget the day because it was September 11. It was like the anniversary um, four years after 
um, and the military and um, just how sombre it was really, but the celebration of – I brought a tear to mine. Um, but that game itself, like I didn't set the world on fire, but I certainly didn't get a punt return for a touchdown. Yeah. I think I hardly had a return yard on me at all. Like it was a, it was a good feeling to know that that you're able to hold your own uh, in the NFL. And look, we had a poor year, 2005, with the Jets. We went four and twelve. Mm-hmm. Herm Edwards, the coach, got sacked. Um, there were a lot of changes because they had been pretty good for a few years. Um, and in some circles. I was voted the MVP because all I did was punt because when you're on a team that sucks, yeah, you have to punt a lot. Well, that, um, and that, that's exactly what I read up and they, uh, they rewarded you the next year with, with a six-year contract. Now, I'm not sure. Clearly, it wasn't guaranteed because we know what happens a bit later on, but there's a lot of respect there. You're obviously the captain. You're the first you know, first person ever to be the captain of two sporting, you know, organisations, which is incredible. Um, and you're the first to ever bring out the drop punt. Is that correct? Well, it's, a, it's correct on the first front that, yes, I think um, as captain of two professional sports in two countries was not something that I was looking to achieve. But in the States, it's very clear that the peers vote for the captains. And there are captains of offense, defense, and special teams. And I was thrilled, honored, so proud that my teammates that I'd been with for only 12 months from another country saw me fit to captain their unit on their team. And it was, it was um, given that we made the playoffs the next year in 2006, you know, I felt like I had a broader impact than just on the field as a punter who, when I started, they saw me as an outcast, yeah. both yeah. from where I was from and the position that I played. Um, the second part of that question was... The drop punt. Were you the first to pull it out? The trailblazer? No. Not correct. Not correct, okay. No, so this, is, so this is the biggest thing about... So the NFL, right? So let's compare it to Australia and the AFL. When someone farts in the AFL, the whole country knows about it. Yeah, right. Now, yeah, it's you know he you know Perth's over there, and that's the a Perth thing. And if he played in Melbourne, he'd be a bigger star than he is. There's there's that. But in the states, there's 32 teams, and every team <clears throat> has got its own market. So it's only unless you're on national TV. So if you're on Sunday night or Monday night football, that the rest of the country doesn't see your team play, right? So Darren did the drop punt from time to time. Uh, there were some other punters that had a knuckleball that was similar to a drop punt, but the rest of the country had never seen it before, especially in New York. So when I got it to New York, it's the first time they saw it. Right. And that's why it got the love yeah. um, that, that it did because it was so new in that market. Especially and and on the east coast, but and it actually took a while for the coaches to understand that it could be used as a weapon because punters in America, strictly before the Aussies started to arrive, was that it was a 
torpedo at all time, no matter where you are on the field. So it took a while to earn the trust of the coaches and we put it in play in certain positions when we were inside 50 and then we backed it up a little bit. But where I did the work to build that trust was at training. So every day in the warm-ups, even when people weren't watching or I thought they weren't watching but they actually were, they wanted to see all the tricks. They wanted to see what we could do and how they could use it on their team. So it wasn't really until I got to Arizona that um, the teams really wanted to – because the, the team – so the Jets, the teams were more conservative. Yeah. At Arizona, they were really aggressive. And we'll talk about Arizona and that run in a bit. But it was <clears throat> it, and the drop punt is it's far pointier football. It doesn't get as much distance, but it's more consistent. Yeah, I was going to say, is it easier for you to kick a drop punt versus a torpedo, or did you find it easy both ways? Oh no, it was never easy because they're quite light. So wind has an effect. Yeah. If you just hit the ball slightly on the point, you'd lose five, ten yards. Yeah. Hang time you don't get as much. So statistically wise it's not a it's not a um, especially back early in my career when all that mattered was the stats and how far you punted and your return yards. But far more consistent. Well yeah. I used to have competitions at practice with the quarterbacks, they'd throw it and I'd kick it. And I couldn't believe that I mean I was as accurate as they are. Yeah. Just you can drop <laughs> stab passes to <laughs> yeah. wide receivers um, running a go route. But the the talk was very it, it can be very inconsistent. Um, but what happened was because it was new and fresh and a bit of a circus. Um, I I would there was so there's one game. I'll tell a quick story about one game. <clears throat> it wasn't a great game. I had um, five punts and a couple were inside 50 where I pinned them deep inside the 10. So they were a tick, not huge punts, but they don't need to be when you're punting inside 50. I had a couple backed up. One I hit okay. One I completely shanked. And then one from midfield where I wasn't sure if I was going to kick the drop punt or a tour, but I went with the tour, tried to kick it to the sideline. And it was a complete shank that, the fumble, the punt returner couldn't return because he fumbled it because it was just a shit kick. Yeah. Anyway, after the game, got to my locker and the media throng gather around like certain lockers from time to time and around my locker. I'm thinking, what's going on here? And they were impressed by my kicking display, all my <laughs> different kicks in my repertoire. <laughs> they taught me through it, Ben. What? You know, you kicked a spiral that we see and... You know, you hit a couple of nice spirals <laughs> and and this this end-to-end, what's this end-to-end? I said, well, I, well, I call that the drop punt. Um, we, we use that when we're punting inside 50, use it directionally. It doesn't go quite as far, but very accurate. Yeah, my gunners know exactly where it's going. And what about that third one? That, that third one that the punt returners find really difficult to handle, it's sort of, it's sort of, it's corkscrews through the air and it, it doesn't get much hang time. But it, and I just off the cuff said, oh, I'll call that one the mongrel. <laughs> and they went with it. They went, oh, Ben Graham, he's got 
different kicks. He's got the drop pump for this. He's got the torpedo for this. And he's got the mongrel. <laughs> That's great. And they bought got, everything. They they bought everything. Oh, and the press is massive there, so it's um oh that's great. Well, yeah, I looked at your I looked at your stats and or like the team anyway, two thousand and five, four and twelve, two thousand and six, ten and ten and six, two thousand and seven, four and twelve, and then two thousand and eight, nine and seven, and we had Brett Favre, um well, I think that's how you say his last name, as QB. What's he like to play with? Wow. Mate, he's a I, I, I didn't know him for very long, but he's a. From what I, my experience with him, he's an absolute legend. Yeah, one of the best blokes I've ever. So, how that all came about, and I guess this will start on. Want to talk about two thousand and eight now because that was the start of two thousand eight. Yeah, I was going to lead into how it ended the Jets and how how that something happened the next week and then it ended again. But um, yeah, you can just creep onto that. Because I find that I find that extraordinary. How you? I mean, we can tell everyone the, the Jets have cut you. The bloke's done an injury. They've pulled you back. Talk me through the conversations, yeah. and then. Well, let's start with Brett Favre, right? So, at the end of two thousand and seven, I was going into my fourth year at the Jets, and that preseason, I was top of my game, nailing everything, consistent. I was the punter that the Jets thought that they were going to get or, or were happy to get three years earlier, when I, four years earlier when I come over. And so I was leading the league in every statistical category in the preseason. Now what happened was in the preseason we're in Cleveland and Chad Pennington, who was a quarterback of the Jets for a long time and is a good mate, he, there was rumours that he was going to be moved on by the organisation which is a really sad day for someone that's given so much, was such a great leader, but he was shot down with injuries. And But then the rumour started that Brett Favre was coming to town. And when you sort of hear that, I mean, Brett Favre is like a legend. Mm. And for my paths to cross with him, potentially, was like a huge buzz. So I couldn't sleep. So I'm up at 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm watching ESPN, waiting for, like, is he, is he coming, is he coming? And then at the bottom of it said, ticker, um, Brett Favre agrees to terms with the New York Jets. So we get up the next morning and we go down to breakfast, want to see the mood of everybody, like, Brett Favre. Yeah. And Chad Pennington is like, oh, poor Chad. Like, so it's a real mixed emotions sort of morning. But we're at the game at Cleveland later that day and, of course, the head honchos had flown him in on the private jet to come to the preseason game. They marched him into the locker room. And all the players were out practicing. I was the only one in there. And so I was the first person he met. Brett, we'd like to introduce you to our Australian punter, Ben Graham. Yeah. And then, Sam, yeah. G'day, mate. How you going, Brett? Great to meet you. And he's like, I'm so happy to meet you, Ben. And I'm so happy you're here. Because it means that I'm not the oldest person on this team. <laughs> so me and him got along from the house on fire because we were, you know, the eldest statesman of the team at that point. So ready to um, ready to rumble with Brett. Anyway, um, start of the season, we reasonable week one. Week two, we play the Patriots. Division rival at the Meadowlands. Windy day. Um, 
And I had a shit game. Like I had four punts. They were all backed up. I mishit all of them. Tom Brady had starting field position in our half, scored touchdowns on every drive. Patriots win. I get to the club on Monday and I get a tap on the shoulder saying, Jam wants to see you. Walked into his office. He said, Ben, look, thanks for your services, but we're going to go in a different direction and we're going to release you. Couldn't believe it. Like, that pre-season I appeared on Sesame Street. I'd rung the Wall Street bell. The Wiggles did an encore in my Jets jersey (laughs) on stage at the Nassau Coliseum. Like, I was on top of the world and now I had one bad game and I'm on the street. And I couldn't couldn't believe it. So I went to San Diego to spend some time with Darren, have a couple of beers, just get back to the simple things from punting, just to clear my head. And uh, the guy they replaced me with um, did a hamstring at training during the week. And the funny thing was the Jets were playing in San Diego week three and I was already there. They called me up and said, my agent called me up and said, look, they've been trying to get onto you. They want to re-sign you. And I told my agent to tell him to go and get yeah. nicked and, you know, wiser heads prevailed and said, yes, well, it's an opportunity to get back in the game. And so I rocked up to the team hotel the morning of the game and the players didn't even know. They didn't realise. They thought I'd gone back to Australia for a week. <laughs> <laughs> like they, they seriously had no idea except for the guys on special teams that knew that Reggie Hodges, who replaced me, did his hamstring. Yeah. And this bar's – yeah. So anyway, but I was back. So we we had a good win in San Diego, punted well. We came back week four, back to Meadowlands, had another win. Back, I'm back. Different attitude. Like I'm not as invested in everything else now. I'm just understand the game. I'm a hired gun. I need to perform. Yeah. Um, so anyway, got there on the Monday. Everyone's got their um, – team uniform in their locker because we're about to go and shoot the uh, team photo, which is a big day when you get in the team photo of an NFL team. And uh, just as I was getting ready, he got tap on the shoulder. GM wants to see you. Oh, beauty, yep. Yeah. How you going, mate? What's, what's going on? Got to hurry, though. So got a, we got the team photo. <laughs> he goes, Ben, uh, we're going to release you. Unbelievable. So that was it. So I had to pack my bags while they're all out on the – field getting their team photo didn't have a chance to say goodbye to anyone um sat in the car for an hour bawled my eyes out thinking it was the end how am i going to tell my family how am i going to tell the kids like because we'd set up a good life in new york but anyway the nfl works in funny ways i um had a couple of weeks doing workouts for other teams because they bring players that get cut uh, in for a workout to see if they can be an upgrade over their current punter or any position that they bring in on a Tuesday to, to work out. And a lot of the team just wanted to understand why I was on why I was released. Yeah. Couldn't tell them other than I had a poor game against the Patriots and the guy they replaced me who did the hamstring and they released me because he got healthy and he was cheaper. 
He was on a rookie wage where I was four years into a six-year deal. So anyway, as it turns out, uh, I got a call on a Sunday night from the New Orleans Saints yeah. who just I, who I just finished watching against the Carolina Panthers in Carolina. They said, Ben, how far are you from the Newark airport? I said, I could be there within the hour. They said, well, there's a first-class ticket waiting for you to London. They were playing at Wembley the next weekend, right? That's all I knew. So no questions asked, packed my bags, straight to the airport. Got on the plane, first class, land in London, picks me, chauffeur picks me up in the airport, takes me to the Grubner Hotel, which is beautiful countryside in England. It's where the English soccer team go and do their, their training camp. Like it's... Yeah. Anyway, so I get to my room, um, settle in, get news that the team plane would be landing soon. They'd be at the hotel soon. Great. Next thing I get a knock at the door. It was the porter saying, oh, Mr. Weatherford, your luggage has arrived. <laughs> so, hang on, I'm not Mr. Weatherford. I'm, I'm Ben. So what happened was... During the week, Steve Weatherford, the punter for the New Orleans Saints, had had a blue with the GM, flipped the bird or called him something um, because he was they had an indoor practice facility and he was trying to hit the roof and he did and, and smashed a light and the GM told him off and he, he gave him a bird and said, take it out and we'll pay. Anyway, he must have had a poor game against the Carolina Panthers because when he was coming out of the shower, still with his towel on, the GM told him that he was cut and wouldn't be going to London. Yeah? Unbelievable. So anyway, his luggage got there because I was his replacement. <laughs> I was staying in his room. His luggage still arrived. But anyway, had a great week in London with Drew Brees and all the Saints boys. Had a fantastic time. We won the game on that weekend, played the Chargers, won the game. Got back to New Orleans looking for an apartment, thinking I'm back. Back in the league, I'm at the Saints. What does it look like? Where am I going to live? Like, they're great team, great players. Uh, got a call from Sean Payton. I was with the kicker, and he said, Ben, come in. We need to have a chat. I'm thinking, beauty, he's going to tell me how good it's going to be to play for the New Orleans Saints. Next thing, Taylor's phone rang. Sean, want to come in and have a chat. He was worried he was going to get the arse. I was thinking that I'm going to be at New Orleans at least for the rest of the year. Never before has a punter and a kicker been cut on the same day, so we can rule that out. So we got in there. Sean Payton sat us down. He said, boys, thanks for coming to London. Thanks for joining us. We're going to cut you both. We're going in a different direction. Oh. <clears throat> Just as simple as that. So I spoke to my agent afterwards and said, <clears throat> what's going on? Like, this is... I get a call, get a first class there, I get put up, spend a week in London, play the game, play well. Like, what's going on? So when they cut Steve Weatherford, it was <clears throat> probably a bit hasty on their behalf because they then said, well, who's going to punt for us in London? So they went down their list of punters that they had on their shortlist and the first two didn't have a passport. <laughs> So I was third. He's from Australia. He must have a passport. Bring him over. 
<clears throat> they bought me over just because I had a passport for that one game. So, great experience. Yeah. But I'm out of the NFL again. So it's a it's, it's, it's a, a pretty rocky road. It's a must like an emotional roller coaster, and obviously there'd be conversations with your family along the way, and looking for accommodation or somewhere to live, and you know, as you said, setting up shop. But I guess the um. I mean, this is this year. I was telling you earlier today. I can't wait to talk about this year because it had everything. It had everything. Um, you have a month off, roughly, and then you get the most amazing call on December one from Arizona. What was that like? Well, my attitude had completely changed. Like I was almost turning down workouts because I'd been to six before, and it was they fly you in, they take you to the hospital. They jab you and put things on you and and then you go and punt for an hour, an hour on end, guys with clipboards and stopwatches and they're judging you the whole time. It's not. It didn't become fun anymore. And at the end of it, they just send you a packet. Thanks for your time. The one I got from the Cardinals <clears throat> was, the first question I asked was, how many other people are working out? They said three. So that told me two things. One is that they're serious because sometimes they only bring in one or two, that they're yeah. serious. And two is how's their current punter going? And he was bottom of the league in every category. Yeah. So I thought, oh, well, we'll give it a, we'll give it a go. My confidence was at an all-time low. Yeah. I'd been through the hammer, through the ringer all year, you know. Because you're right, living in another country – with young kids, wife not allowed to work, like it's, it, it, it was it was tough. There were some really t- tough days, especially how great the year started. It was some dark days in the middle there. But got the phone call, flew to Arizona, and had the worst workout I've ever had. <laughs> On mid-workout thinking I should just leave now because I'm embarrassing myself. <laughs> Like, seriously, it was – but what happened was the special teams coach was a situational guy. And because Kurt Warner, Larry Fitzgerald, Anquan Bolden, Steve Preston, those three had 1,000-yard receiving years, which first time ever three have done it from the one team. Kurt Warner's an absolute freak. But they're on their way to the playoffs for the first time in decades – they had a high-powered offense. They wanted a punter that could pin the opposition deep. So we went into all these situations where they'd get you on the sideline, they'd blow a whistle, they'd call you on. Fourth and seven from the 40. Like, <clears throat> I nailed every single drop punt. They landed on the one and bouncing back. They were, uh, I put on a clinic of drop punt. And they effectively sent two guys home mid-workout. Two of us then, at the end of the workout, they said, hit the showers, we'll let you know. So we sat in the change room for maybe three hours, waiting to be told whether one of us or either of us were going to win the job. But the longer it went, we thought that we must, someone must be getting the job here, otherwise they just have already sent us home. Anyway, came down. Um, two guys came down. Ben, you come this way. The other guy will go this way. So... We had no idea what was going on. I went up to the GM's office to sign a contract. The other guy went to the van to take to the airport. 
That's epic. That was it. That's it. I got, got a contract in front of me. They said, Ben, would you like to call your agent to discuss the terms and conditions of the contract? I said, fuck no. Where's the pen? <laughs> yeah. Get me back in. Yeah. Get me back in. <laughs> but, so, but what happened was <clears throat> Kevin Spencer, the special teams coach, knew what I'd been through. He'd known that story from Australia. He had been apparently trying to get me on board for most of the year once I was released from the Jets. But the funniest thing happened. He, I mean, he put all his faith in me. He put his arm around me. He said, you know, we're going to work with you. First game against the Minnesota Vikings that I put on an Arizona Cardinals jersey, I hit this beautiful punt. It was like it made the last couple of months of heartache and pain go away. It just sailed through the air. Bernard Berrien caught it right on the sideline. I saw 10 of my teammates surround him thinking, you've got this, boys, tackling for a loss. Anyway, next thing, he's got through them all, and I'm one-on-one with him in the open field. He goes, zoop, <laughs> gone, touchdown. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, my career's over. Like, I'm going to be walking off this field, and Kevin Spencer's going to say, Ben, keep walking. But, no, he put his arm around me, and he said, mate, I know you've been through a lot. That was a beautiful punt. That's not on you. We're going to work with you. We're going to put our faith in you. We're going places, this team. It's going to be fun. Relax. This is going to be great. And that was all I needed. Someone showed that faith in me, and four weeks later we were playing playoffs, and four weeks after that we were playing in the Super Bowl. Yeah, it's crazy. We're touching on it. It's amazing how coaches, I think, as a a player, there's too many – there's a lot of ruthless coaches when – Sometimes players just need that arm around the shoulder because we've all had a mare some days and you keep thinking about your mistakes and you're thinking about the next one. Sometimes you just need a coach to say, mate, you're all right, we don't care. Just you know, nail the next one. All of a sudden, you start playing better. So it sounds like this bloke's an absolute legend, this coach, the special teams coach. Well, he was, he's an absolute legend of a bloke. He was a shit yeah. special teams coach. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> but, but that's the art of coaching right there, though, is getting the best out of your players, knowing which ones and when you need to give a hug or give a yeah. kick up the ass, And that's, I mean, the thing with the NFL is coaches are reluctant to make these connections with players because they know at any point in time they don't want to have that. I mean, and I'm not talking about the relationship between Bill Belichick and Tom Brady, you know, or, or any superstar player and coach at any level. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the 90% of players in the NFL that are not on long-term contracts, that they know that they're a dime a dozen and at any point in time, unless they're performing, can get cut. As hard as that year was, this is one... I mean, I did a lot of research today around this Super Bowl, um, and this is my take. It's one of the most special Super Bowls I've seen on reflection. Um, But before I get into the game, the lead-up to this game... Your teammates couldn't believe the press you were getting as a kicker or a punter. Mate, it was – well, I mean, it was – I was still meeting teammates during the playoffs that I hadn't met in the four weeks that I'd been towards the end of the regular season. Like, Darnell Docker didn't know I was from Australia the morning of the NFC Championship game. Like, it was just – that's – it's just how the NFL works. You don't. It's not like the AFL where you're mates with everybody and everyone knows everything about everyone. 
there are three divisions in the to each team. There are different backgrounds, and it's so much more diverse than Australia is, especially from a professional sports standpoint. But it, um, we the playoffs were an amazing run. I mean, we 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 got lucky. We we were called the worst playoff team in NFL history because we finished nine and seven. No one gave us a chance. We played Atlanta week one. It was a home final because we finished as the fourth seed as winning the NFC West. And it was probably where I stamped myself on the Cardinals. I had five punts, four inside 20 and three inside the 10, which helped set up the win from a defensive point of view. And we were underdogs, but we got up and won. The next week, we had to go to the number one seed, Carolina Panthers, and it was a really stormy, wet night. Had an eerie feel about it. Jake DeLone, left-handed quarterback for the Panthers, threw four interceptions, and we won. But the other results went our way, so we ended up hosting Sav Rocker and the Eagles yeah. in Arizona. Yeah. So it was a, it all fell our way. Um, we, it was a touch and go. Donovan Nav was playing lights out, but so was Kurt Warner and Larry. And um, Sav and I shook hands at the start of the game and said, one of us is going to be the first Australian to play in a Super Bowl, and we were so happy that Australia was going to represent. At the end of the game, we shook hands. And it, it, it was knowing that in two weeks' time, I was going to be the first Australian to play in a Super Bowl. It was, it was an unbelievable period. But probably the biggest event during that two weeks is media day where the world's media come to the stadium and the players get rolled out to face the media. And it's an opportunity because a lot of guys don't have an opportunity to tell their story during the year because they're only focusing on the quarterback, the wide receiver, the star defensive player. So this is an opportunity where they roll out 10 boots for the 10 big big-name players, top players, and then the rest sort of sit in the stand where the rest of the media go and they walk through the stands and interview the players, but they're available for that whole two hours. Well, then they presented the booths, you know, Kurt Warner, Larry Fitzgerald, Anquan Bolden, and it got to number 10, and they said, punter, Ben Graham. <laughs> Seriously, 55 of my teammates and we fell off their chair thinking that they were more worthy than I was to have our own booth. But the NFL and the Cardinals realised that this was a, a, an international story that was having an international impact. It was bringing new fans to the sport. You know, there was time during the press conference that I had more people in front of my booth and they were all sort of looking out of theirs going, where is everyone? <laughs> Al Jazeera and BBC and the whole it was amazing. it was fascinating but it was again it was just another opportunity for my teammates to sort of understand where I come from and who I was yeah it's awesome and you deserve it and it's um yeah it's great I can only imagine the teammates and the, I mean this is the game so for anyone that has missed it this is my take because I've watched the highlights I've watched the replay but um it's an unbelievable game because NFL, I mean, you know how much I love the sport and yourself, but it was, it's, there's not much going on. And, the, you know, at halftime, just before halftime, you're about to throw a touchdown on the goal line 
and Harrison picks it off for Pittsburgh and runs the whole way. Larry actually nearly gets him at the end, and all of a sudden, you go into the uh, you go into the sheds, and it could have been it could have been a uh, a tie. I think it's fourteen all, but it becomes twenty to seven. And big swing, big swing, and momentum killer. And uh, look, that's not great. It's not great. And we'll get to the second half. But something happens at halftime. I think there's a few sprays, and there's a bit of Bruce Springsteen going on. And you've decided that you don't want to listen to the coach. Talk us through that one. Oh yeah. Well, you got to remember, we were massive underdogs in every game that we played. And then we got to the Super Bowl, and the Steelers were looking for. They call it one for the thumb. Jerome Bettis was their fullback, and he was one for the thumb. So, I mean, they were, they were hot favourites. So the fact that we were in the game going into halftime was an amazing effort at that point. But you're right. We had an opportunity right at halftime to score that touchdown. We're right on the goal line. Kurt sees something, misses a throw. James Harrison picks him off, runs 100 yards back the other day. Other way, halftime. So, basically, we go into halftime in the sheds, and the, the, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers away change rooms is tiny. You can hardly swing a cat. So you imagine you've got 60 players, 25 coaches, everyone else, it's, and there are people yelling and screaming and throwing chairs, and, like, it was really a place that you can't, couldn't get any peace and quiet or just a, what you'd expect at the halftime when there's, you need some time to yourself. So I thought I'd get out of there, so I left the change rooms and I went out to the field and because you could hear the music going on in the change room, so I thought I'd go check it out anyway. So I went and sat on the bleachers and had front row seats to the Bruce Springsteen concert. It was amazing. Unbelievable. It was one of the highlights. I've actually seen him live. My um, my old host family that um, got me a ticket, I reckon, I reckon he was in Perth and... One thing with him, he, he absolutely sends it, doesn't he? Like, he works hard on there, on stage. Yeah, now, I mean, as far as uh, halftime entertainment goes, you wouldn't say that it's been the best production or performance even over the journey. But the fact that I was there and he's the boss, yeah, hey, it was unbelievable. Well, I reckon the boss is, uh, he's got the boys going because... Again, for anyone that missed the game, there's not much going on in the third, but this is where it just gets incredible. Um, it's There's 7.35 to go. You've got the ball. Kurt throws it to Larry. Touchdown. It's now 14.20. And then uh, three minutes to go. Steelers have got the ball in your end zone, and Ben throws this beautiful pass down the middle. And they catch it, and it's probably looking like game over. And all of a sudden, the flag comes out, and it's a safety, and it's two points to you guys. It's now 16-20, and you've got the ball back with two minutes and 35 seconds to go. And Kurt throws the ball down the middle to Larry, and he just runs all the way through. And honestly, when I was watching it today, I just think it's the five minutes time to score that many points. They haven't scored much. All of a sudden, there's two minutes. What is there? Two minutes, 48 to go in the fourth. Your defense holds up. You win. Um, anyway, Ben goes down. 
He links up with Holmes. They get it to the goal line and, um, mate, that, you know, Santonio Holmes gets this freakish catch and gets his toes in with 40 seconds to go. And, and ultimately, it's curtains and it goes down as one of the greatest Super Bowls ever. Um, you but really dragged that out, didn't you? Yeah, oh, mate. But it hurt watching because you were so close. And, and uh, it still is an incredible effort. But what, what was it like watching that on the sidelines? Do you, do you remember it vividly? Oh, absolutely I do. Because... You know, we had to come back from so far, especially mm. not only the score-wise, but morale was terrible mm. because of what happened right at the end of the half. But we found a way. Kurt had been great all year. Larry, had he was an emerging superstar at that point. That, that playoff series really put him on the map. But what was fascinating is I had a couple of punts in that stretch and one of the punts was down to the one-yard line. That was the one that led to the safety. That's the one that pinned them, yeah. Um, so at that point, it was like, you know what? We score and we get the ball back. If we score here, we're right in it. And that was a drive where Larry, you know, it was just a brilliant, well-constructed drive. But it was probably, you don't think about this at the time, but we didn't take enough time off the clock. Because we wanted to score. We weren't talking about getting a lead and holding on to win. And they were struggling to move the ball. Um, he converted a couple of fourth downs. But when we got the ball back and Larry was running down the field, down the middle of the field, looking at himself on the big screen, and, and I, I've said this before and I'm reluctant to come across as critical, but if he had it, you know sometimes you see a wide receiver when they're open, and they run in for a touchdown, they take a knee or they go down before the line yeah. just to run an extra couple of plays. To t- Who knows what would have happened if he had have done that. But in saying that, when we did take the lead, I'm on the sideline with my special teams unit and we were looking at each other going, we're about to win the Super Bowl. Like, forget about the fact that we're actually in a Super Bowl which is just amazing. <laughs> but we were in a position to win it. Now, what happened on that drive, Ben was amazing. He was evading tackles. The play call, you know, he converted fourth and ten twice. Like, he did so many things on that drive that it was almost unbelievable. And the pass to Santonio Holmes, I mean, that, everyone hates a long replay, but understands that you want to get it right. This was the longest replay in Super Bowl history because you couldn't tell whether his feet had touched the ground or not or the blade of grass was touching his cleat. Yeah. Like it was that close. People call it the phantom catch. Anyway, they scored a touchdown. They took the lead, but we still had plenty of time left. We still had a chance to win the game with over a minute left. They couldn't get it done. But you know what? I've said it once, I've said it before, the result doesn't matter. It really doesn't. I'm no less of a person because I'm sitting here without winning a Super Bowl. The journey, what we went through, what we experienced that year itself, just partaking in the Super Bowl after it's all I ever knew of the NFL when I was growing up. I was just pinch myself, still do. Yeah, it's... 
It's incredible, and you're right. You should be so proud. And off the back of the year you've had, this is why I was texting you today, saying your year, 2008, 2009, that there's no more lows and highs in six months in that in that game. I wouldn't have thought. Um, it's it's oh, incredible. No, that's, that's the roller coaster of the NFL, right there. You, you top of the world start <laughs> playing yeah. for one team, like. And I said, before, like, to to be asked to to appear on Sesame Street. Yeah. I mean, what? Like, never thought of that growing up. I used to watch Sesame Street, little alone ever think that I'd appear on it. To take the kids to a Wiggles concert and to see them come out in an encore wearing my Jets jersey. It's like, holy shit! We're living in New York. I mean, ringing the stock exchange bell, like that. Up at those things. I mean. And then, so that's a high, you know. You, if you make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. Like that's sort of, <laughs> yeah. But, but they, it went to the deeps. You know, it was dark days. There was it was tough times. Um, I was the third player in NFL history to play for three teams in the one year. Mm. Not a great sort of stat to hold, but still, well, it's, it's just the back to the NFL. But then on the way back up. Finished the year playing the Super Bowl. So, yep, it was a fascinating 12 months. Yeah, it's incredible. Let's um, let's touch on Larry Fitz and Kurt Warner as teammates. What was it? I've done. I've actually watched a Larry Fitz doco, and we'll talk about him next. But um, what was it like playing with them? And are you still keeping contact with them? Yeah, Larry Fitz is one of my all-time favourites. Um, my hardest working teammate I've ever had. Great leader, great head on his shoulders. Um, come from a great family, respects everyone um, equally. Just a great all-round good dude. And the fact that he loves Australia and he comes out here pre-COVID every year, we catch up, plays golf. Um, you know, shown him Bennett. You know, you like to. I've spent time in his backyard, and when he comes to spend time in my backyard, you like to. Show him around, but just cracking guy. Where have you taken him? Oh, we went out for dinner at Crown and just played golf in Royal Melbourne. And yeah, you know, he loves the outback. Like he does some amazing things. He he doesn't waste a minute, um, mm. Larry. But yeah, just an just an awesome guy. I mean, they're they're all sorts of great teammates. You know, they've all got their own story. Um, played with Brett Favre for four weeks. You know, like he's a legend of yeah. the sport. Played against Tom Brady, captained against Tom Brady. You yeah. know, and here he is still playing, winning his another Super Bowl ring. Like yeah. just fascinating. Just lots incredible. of characters in the sport. Um, and still keeping contact with a, a lot of. Oh, on Larry's um documentary, I watched his. He's probably just the most popular guy around town. They reckon he could be the mayor with ease. He um, does a lot for the charities. He uh, loves traveling alone. I saw that he, he speaks about um, just getting to know the culture and he reckons it really helps him get to know his teammates. But also what fascinates me is his hands, mate. He hasn't dropped a catch. I think he's had more tackles than drops. He's just, what does he do extra? Is he just a freak or is he doing that many extras after training so that he does not drop a ball? Oh, he's just so switched on. I mean, I, he um, 
his work ethic and his concentration. Like some guys, you know, if you, they're running routes, you know, they'll catch the ball and they'll turn and throw it back to the ball kid and go and line up for their next route. He's running flat out for a touchdown every single time. Yeah. Like he's, he has got naturally good hands because he's not the fastest wide receiver. He's really solidly built. But he's just a leader that works hard um, and very well respected. You're right. He's, he could be a politician, um, heavily involved in charities. Um, and I would say he's, from a lot of people that I've come across in the NFL who don't spend their money wisely, they don't save for the future because it's a very, um, well, as, as far as the NFL having little or no guarantee, the way it works is that if you're on a contract, you earn game checks. So if you're on minimum wage, and this is going to sound like a lot, but if minimum wage, let's say, is 850000 a year, 17 games a year, that's $50,000 a week. Right now, that seems like a lot. If you're getting a game check every week for $50,000 minus tax, so let's call it 35000 If people, you said to people, how would you go living on $35,000 a week? What? Living the dream, right? But what happens over there is you get those 17 game checks. Now, for the other 35 weeks of the year, there are no game checks. So you've got to learn to hold your money back, spend it wisely, start putting away for the future. And because the average time in the league is only three years, guys don't do that unless you're at the ilk of Larry Fitzgerald or you know those high-paid players where money is an issue. But he's very smart with his money. But what I love about Larry, one of the things I love about Larry, because <clears throat> I was looking for a car at one point and I asked him, because he used to drive some nice cars. He had a Ferrari, a Cadillac, Escalade. Like it was. I'd ask him which one was his favourite car because he seems to drive in a different car every day. He said, yeah, well, um, I, I like them all. That's why I have one. I drive a different car every day. Is that what, I know what day it is. You know, so his garage is stocked full of these beautiful, expensive cars. I said, when he goes back to Minnesota in the off-season, which one does he take with him? He says, I don't take any because I bought two of each. I've got a set here and a set there. (laughs) (laughs) And you think that's over the top. Like that's what a waste of money. But he loves cars and he loves nice things and, you know, in in all relative terms. I mean, his nice cars are equivalent to my one nice car. Like it's – Yeah, yeah. doesn't waste a cent though when it comes to – how he spends his money, unlike some other NFL players. I've got one more story. There's a, I read up that there's a tackle on Amendola. Talk me through that play. I think it was Amendola. You've, you talked about one earlier where you punted it and he's just gone whooshka straight past you. But this time, I reckon you learned from your mistakes and um, you've, you've managed to spear a bloke. Yeah, well, you know, as I said before, punters and kickers are generally not well-respected amongst the NFL ranks because... They do their thing over there and they just come on and come off. And we wanted to change that. So the best thing to do was to get amongst it, 
get down the field after you've kicked and if you need to get in on a tackle, then you get in on one. Yeah. But it really largely goes unnoticed until you do something pretty spectacular, which is um, out of the blue. And I've, and, I've, and I've made a few tackles um, and it's probably, you know, an AFL thing where naturally you're not, uh, you know, you don't want to be seen to be running the other way. But... Yeah, Amendola was one. There was a, a, a punt returner from the Buffalo Bills who, his name escapes me, but at that time he was leading the league in punt return and had the most punt return for touchdowns. And he's only a small guy. And I had, I, I sort of, he was being chased. And what happens as a punter, you just sort of coach to not let them back on the inside. Yeah. So if they're going to beat you, they can beat you outside. And, yeah. some, and, and they'll be pushed out of bounds. Well, I must have had someone that's forcing back in my path and I just dropped my shoulder and knocked him out clean. <laughs> just lying on his back like with these big white eyes, just like I was felt so bad. Like because <laughs> I got him right in this I sort of picked him up and helped him up and like it and but it was like the Teammates on the sideline were like hooping and hollering. Yeah, they were going wild. All over the place, going wild. Then it was shown all week in meetings and like this is – it was used as a tape to spur on defensive players that were missing tackles. Like it was yeah. – it got some love internally. But the, the, um, the, the one that I remember the most was at the Cardinals – I'd, I'd equaled the NFL record for punts inside the 20, which was it was in 2009, which was it's since been broken. But at the time, like that proved that the drop punt can be a weapon. And it was at that point that even American punters started transitioning to kick the drop punt when they were doing inside 50s. So I'd, it was the last game of the year. I just equaled the record, and this punt was to break the record. And I hit a nice punt. It was inside 20. The guys had their hands on him. It was, I was about to break the record. He got free. The next thing he's out, one-on-one. And we were, we were down at this point, right at the end of the game. Anyway, so Jason Wright, my fullback, was chasing him from behind. I had him, like, front on. I could see he was taking his inside. I went the outside against the coach's wishes. But it allowed him to go back into Jason's path. So yeah. Jason went to tackle him. I came in second, hit him, stripped the ball. We recovered it, went back down the field and won the game. Okay. So everyone's wrapped because, you know, we made the tackle, we'd stripped the ball, we'd won the game. But I didn't break the record. Yeah. But I records will show that... Um, Equaling an NFL record is still um, a feat that I'm proud of. Yeah, oh, it's incredible, mate. You've got such, yeah, what you've done's unbelievable. But I could just imagine they go absolutely wild on the on the side. Like there'd be no there'd be no better feeling than just wobbling. Yeah, you, know, you got the helmet on, but walking over and the boys would just be jumping on top of you and getting around you. And I think that's why you were probably voted a skipper early because got a lot of respect. And doing something like that is probably how you get a lot of respect as a as a punter. Um, well, yeah, well, mate, incredible career in Arizona. And then 
Um, unfortunately, it comes to an end as well. And, and then you go over to, to Detroit. What was, um, what was Detroit like compared to Jets and Cardinals? Yeah, it's a good question. It's probably the thing that cost me was the lockout, the NFL lockout, when the owners locked the players out. Yeah. Um, every, everyone went back home, including us, came back to Australia. So when it launched again, everything had changed. All the contracts were null and void. It just didn't feel right. And I had a poor couple of weeks of training camp, got cut. They'd signed a, a veteran punter. And then I was back on the merry-go-round of trying to get another job. And it was at that point that um, we'd agreed that it wasn't long before we were going to move back to Australia anyway. The girls were about to start high school. Um, so we did essentially until uh, the lockout ended. But Detroit gave me an opportunity. I went and played the best part of two seasons. Um, it was tough being away from the family but it was a good organisation run by the Ford family who had an affiliation with through Geelong. Um, but ultimately squeezed out the most I could before a calf injury ended my career in 2012. But you know, looking back, eight years, the experiences, the journey, you know, it's, it's just so proud that we're able to experience the highs and the lows of living in another country, playing another professional sport. Yeah, and after playing AFL for so long as well, it's it's incredible. I've um, a little birdie told me that uh, you might have had one night in Detroit where you might have been a little bit of a carjacking. Is uh, is there any truth to this? Um, yes, there is. Um, I don't know how close. I might have put some mayo on it at some point, but I'll tell you exactly how it went down. <laughs> so my father-in-law loves watching the the shows on um, the History Channel or the, you know, the antique gold, silver and gold. Um, what's the show's called? Um, the Porn... Porn Stars? Porn Stars? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so, and he, so he... He was like, well, Ben, you're in Detroit. You've got to go here. You've got to go there. You've got to go and meet this guy. So I just put in the Google Maps where one of these places were from from the facility, from the Detroit Lions facility. And it's a fascinating city, Detroit. I've got a lot of respect for it. It's it's done some hard yards from the 60s when the automobile industry, it's basically, think of it like a ring. You've got downtown and you've got this, freeway system, everything on the outside's just countryside, and you've got this ring between downtown and the freeway system that's slums and houses burnt down and, you know, the city have let, let it go to rack and ruin. It's sort of eight mile and, and where all that is. But to get from where I was to get to this uh, porn stars shop, they I had to go through the roughest part of Detroit and you felt like you were in it. But I was driving in, you know, a nice car. It was, it was um, Range Rover with all the trimmings. And <laughs> I, you can imagine I pulled up at one of those, you know, the, in America you've got those low-hanging lights, you know, that swing in the breeze and everything was quiet and houses, every third house was burnt out or knocked to the ground and it was kind of eerie. 
But anyway, I stopped at the lights, and next thing I saw some movement over the house over there, and another guy's coming out of the house there, and it was like there was going to be a, some sort of gangland <laughs> war, either that or they were coming to hock the car. So I just locked the doors real quick and put it into drive and just burned through the lights. Because who knows? I mean, you hear some horrific yeah. stories, you know. Yeah. Especially around that time in Detroit, it was named the murder capital of the world. Yeah. But anyway, but to see, um, I ended up getting to the antique dealer and it, they were filming a show there and then at, at that time. But it was just, it, it's what makes Detroit, or oh, any city great. It's the people and the history and, and that was something that I wanted to invest in so I know that I could look back on and not only did I play for the, the, the team, but I played for the town. No, it's incredible. I guess the last thing on your career before we go to the last couple of segments, it'll be nice and sharp, but um, is, there anything, is there anything that you would change or do differently looking back? People used to say that I left Geelong too early and I missed out on the 2007 flag. There's no way I would have still been playing by 2007. If I hadn't have gone to the NFL when I did, I may not have ever have made it. Mm. Um, you know, everything that happened in the States, at times it was tough, but we lived some amazing experiences. My son Jack was born in New York. The kids grew up there effectively. No, I wouldn't, mate. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything. I enjoyed every minute of it, the good and the bad. You know, would winning the Super Bowl make me a better bloke? No. Would have my life changed at all? No. No. It's actually, um, you're spot on and everything happens for a reason. So, nah, it's good, mate. Well, yeah, thanks for touching on your career. I think um, now that the career is over, you now focus heavily on the fantasy season. Uh, we've set up the Osmerican Aces with a great bunch of lads. We've all met probably on Zoom, but... No doubt uh, our man Regan was best on on draft night. Uh, you've, <laughs> you've, slotted, you've slotted pick 11 and yeah, you weren't too happy about it. Um, talk us through your strategy uh, with, with pick 11 and who you've taken off the board early. Well, I was disappointed with pick 11. I, I still haven't seen the video yet to prove that it <laughs> actually was legit. But as commissioner, you know, I'm sure you've got that stashed away for when we go to court. At the end of the year, when things no pick eleven. Look, I will say that I've never seen anyone that picks first win a fantasy comp. Mm. So the beauty about picking eleven, you hope that a couple in front of you are going to make a blue, or have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> um, but with pick eleven, you also get pick fourteen, so you can go bang bang. My strategy, and it always has been, was to have a strong running back. By the time I got to pick 11, 10 running backs had been taken off the board. So I had a decision to get the 11th best running back or the best wide receiver in the draft in Devontae Adams. Okay? I I can cop that. I'll get a running back with my next. So then the next running back come off the board, another running back come off the board, and they come back to me. And the next running back on the board I don't rate at all. And I had Tyreek Hill sitting there. And I went, you know what? 
If I can't load up on my running backs, which I normally would do, I'm going to load up this year on wide receivers. So I've got the best two wide receivers in the draft. And I ended up scaling back, you know, some running backs by committee. Yeah, so Chase Edmonds may not set the world on fire. Raheem Mostert might get overtaken by Troy Sermon, Trey Sermon at one point. Um, you know, Gus Edwards will start for the Ravens now that J.K. Dobbins has gone down. So I think I've got enough there to get me by. I might be looking for a trade at some point. Yeah. But, you know, strong wide receiver, um, Josh Allen, quarterback, love, got Hawkinson at tight end, which, um, which I rate. Um, reasonably happy for pick 11. I think I drafted a, above my, my 11th pick status. You've got to remember, though, that there's a couple of guys in our league that have no idea what they're doing. Week one's always, who knows what happens in week one, but let's hope our teams go better than Regan Bayless on a Saturday round week, mate. Hopefully we get... <laughs> no, Regan won't be watching this anyway, but I knew he was going to have a bad day. I, I told you, didn't I? Yeah, that was quite funny. Unfortunately, he has, he has had a few winners, Regan, but you've summed up his rides last Saturday, and I think he only had one chance, and he gave it a good ride, but the horse didn't give him much, but... I guess that's the best part about our group, if um, anyone hasn't seen. We've got, a, we've got a great bunch of lads, AFL, NRL, jockeys, yourself, um, and you know, and a spud like me that used to play that runs it. Um, and it's, uh, no, it's, it's good banter. So anyone that is, uh, has a fantasy league out there, make sure you tune into our one and we've set up a Discord chat so you can all get around it. Now, mate, the last couple of segments, this will be quick. NFL predictions, Super Bowl winner will be? Buffalo Bills. Big, big. And the MVP would be? Josh Allen. And the player to explode this year will be? Ooh, Zach Wilson. I'm going to say Mac Jones. Mac Jones, right. I was going to say, Q, they reckon he's Mahomes, like, according to Romo. So um, so you're saying that he'll be rookie of the year? Uh, it's going to be tight. It's going to be tight. I just love this quarterback class. Yeah. You add yeah. that to the quality of experienced quarterbacks, but even that next level with Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, got this new breed coming through that can do a bit of everything. Mm. No, it is, mate. It's, it's, I can't wait, honestly. It's like Christmas. Um, who do you support? The great, you know what? It's a great question. Uh, I haven't got a lot of ex-teammates that still play in the league, but the ones that are, I support them and yeah. who they're playing for. Love the Jets, even though how bad that they've been. They gave him a start in the NFL. Uh, can't stand the New Orleans Saints. They can go and get <laughs> Sean Payton. Still thank them for the opportunity, though, to play in London. Very humble, yes. The Arizona Cardinals, you know, that ride, their achievements, the Super Bowl. Living in Arizona was our family's best place to live. Mm-hmm. Um Fantastic spot. Really did enjoy that. Um, and then even, and I'll follow Detroit because of the relationships. I mean, Matt Stafford, um, great guy. Um, I mean, he's had such a long career. He's still such a young man. They just didn't put the things in the right place around him to make him successful. Now that he's at the Rams, mm. I'm going to love watching oh, what he does. So, yes, I'll follow the 
Detroit Lions because I used to play for them, but I'll be also supporting the Rams in an extension because Matt Stafford's playing for them. And they're my smoky. Yeah, I think they're a big, yeah. I, I was going to say when you said, yeah, I, I think they're a big chance with their defense and now they've put him in there. Um, he's he's good to watch and they've got a they've got a great team. So And they'll protect him. Yeah. And he's tough as nails. He doesn't even need protection. Um and the just I just had a question myself, because I had this argument with no context because I never played like yourself, but the fact there was no crowds last year, how much of an impact does that have now this year? Because you know, like you said, they call it they're changing plays, they can communicate to Everyone on the line, when the crowds are there, how much of an impact is that going to have on, on this season? Oh, all for the better. Mm. I mean, there are players that, I mean, 150 players opted out last year. They're not yeah. because there were going to be no crowds, but because of all sorts of different reasons. But an NFL is a game that you need a crowd. Yeah, you really do. And towards the end of the year, they had, you know, caps on the crowd. And even, you know, 15,000 in a 60,000-seat stadium is better than none. But if you saw some of the vision from the college games this weekend, Virginia Tech. Yeah, I know. Wisconsin. Mate, the adrenaline if you're running out around there. Mate, it just it adds a whole new layer or a layer that we probably didn't appreciate as much when we did have them. But it makes a hell of a difference, especially if you're the opposing offense because the crowd is so loud. They're trying to drown you out so you can't communicate the plays to your team. So it will probably have a bigger effect on the younger teams, the rookie quarterbacks. Yeah. Um, and we said last year with COVID through the interrupted preseason is it's probably going to benefit the more veteran experienced teams, lack of practice and continuity and and for the teams that don't change as much, well, they've got to learn to live with COVID this year, obviously. So you won't think that the season will be as interrupted. But the fact the crowds are back, I mean, you think you live in any NFL city and your team only has eight games at the home stadium? Like, every game is an event. Oh, yeah. So, you know, until late in the year when... They start having a losing season. It's a, it's an amazing atmosphere. Yeah, it's uh oh, I wish. And the tailgating and all. Oh, mate, it's it's exciting. We're not. I think we're three days out. Here we go. The last segment. Tommy's ten. These are random questions. Quick fire. Best place to visit in the U.S. Oh, that's a good question. I'm going to say young family Disneyland. The greatest quarterback you've played with. Brett. Five. Now, who is the greatest player you've played against? Tom Brady. Your best mate from the NFL? Mike Nugent. I don't know who Mike is. Can you help me out? Mike, uh, he was the kicker that was drafted in 2005 in the second round to the Jets. We hit it off straight away. Um, We are in contact. This is a true story. The other day I heard a song on the radio. It reminded me of training camp 2006 walking onto the field before practice with him every day of training camp. Same playlist, same song. I'm pulled over from the side of the road. I'm texting him. Mate, you wouldn't believe it. I've just heard the song. I thought of you. I'm just about to press send. He sent me a photo of his son that was just born an hour earlier. 
Oh, wow. Mid-text. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. Anyway, he's had a long career. Um, still keeping contact. Godfather of Jack. Good fella. How many more years does Larry Fitz have? Uh, I think he should retire. It's The writing's been on the wall. Um, he didn't get the ultimate success, but he's had a fantastic career. Um, I'm never going to say never for him because there's probably an opportunity. Let's say mid-season, Kyler Murray fires up. DeAndre Hopkins is going great guns. Looks like they're on a playoff run. Next thing they have a couple of horrific injuries. We don't have to get drafted or wait for the mid-season draft. They just he'll, he'll keep fit. Yeah. Larry, you want to come back in and uh, help us go all the way? Yeah, he's a good story. He only lives around the corner. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, what year will an NFL game be played in Australia? We've spoken about this together. What year are we going to get it down under? Before COVID, I would have said 2030. But who knows now? Yeah. they got a lot of scaling back to do. They, The London experiment, one that I was a part of for the Saints, um, they got it up to about five games per year at Wembley. Who knows when they'll go back. What is the longest punt you've ever recorded, distance-wise and height? My best recorded hang time was um, 5.8. Um, there's probably guys that have kicked. But you don't really kick. The, the, the average hang time in the NFL is about 4.5 seconds. Yeah? yeah. So what they say is if you're going to punt the ball 45 yards, it needs to have 4.5 second hang time. If you're going to punt the ball 50 yards, it needs to have five second hang time. So that's sort of the relationship. Yeah. yeah. So if you're kicking the ball 30 yards with five seconds, that's no good to anyone. If you're kicking yeah. the ball 60 yards with four seconds hang time, you've got these world-class athletes returning the ball with plenty of grass in front of them, good luck. Yeah. Um, but no, you, generally, everything's recorded during practice. My best punts were in practice because in the game, they're just harder to replicate, mm-hmm. especially because the balls that they use in a game just come straight out of the bag and pumped up. The ones you use at practice have been worked in yeah. a little bit, little pumpkins. Yeah. AFL Grand Final or Super Bowl? Yeah. Uh, again, I uh, don't want to be disrespectful to the AFL, but um, an NFL regular season game has got as much hype as an AFL grand final in the city that you play in. I grew up wanting to play um, AFL and win an AFL grand final, and during my time we weren't good enough to win one. But in all things being equal, the NFL Super Bowl, um, by far and away, outweighs the uh, AFL Grand Final. Yeah. And my last question, great man, is if you could draft one current AFL player right now to punt in the NFL, who would it be? Ooh. Uh, well, things have changed. You remember since I, Sav and I sort of got into the league and Darren before us, um, they go through college now. So... Given the system that's in place, it's a tough question because 
I don't know them intimately enough or their technique enough or because, you know, I worked with Josh Hunt when he first came out of the league who we thought would make that transition into the NFL, but he had really poor flexibility and inconsistent technique. When he roosted it, like, wow, he lights out, but couldn't find that sweet spot all of the time because of consistency and lack of flexibility. There are, you don't have to be the strongest. Like, if people want to talk about um, Daniel Rich, would be a, make the transition no worries. But I've never seen him. He may not be any good if the ball's in his hand for 1.2 seconds yeah. before he's got to get rid of it. Yeah, there's so many factors. It's a hard question. That's why I asked you. I mean, Matty Suckling, who you know, um, and I know he can roost a ball. I've seen him actually on Instagram punting them. Old teammate of mine, Max Duffy. Lazy. Matt, suckers is too lazy. <laughs> <laughs> he can punt it, though. And then Max Duffy, former teammate of mine, he's currently working out, so we wish him all the best. And there's a few others. Um, oh, there's lots of them, mate. Lots of them. And you know what? It's, I'm proud to say that, um, you know, and Darren before me and lots of guys after me and guys that are currently punting in the league, they're paving the way for all these young Australians to have something to strive for if they have the ability to kick the football. You don't have to be an AFL footballer. Look at Mish Wisnowski, the 49ers. Local footballer. He put glass in for a living. Decided mm. to give it a go because he had a decent league on him. And look where he is now. Mm. Nah, it's good. You've, you've paved the way for a lot of them. It'll be... Uh... I reckon when we get a wide receiver, that'll blow the bank um, as well. It'd be good to see some some wide receivers as well that represent Australia, but I, I don't reckon we'll have many of them coming soon, Benny. No, well, look, mate, to be honest, and I've seen the Jared Hayne experiment, Valentine, Valentine Holmes, when I was at the Jets, Willie Mason used to play in the NRL, um, come over and work out. It's a difficult game to walk into without having that foundation of high school and college. It's just a tough gig, tough yeah. gig. The idiosyncrasies of the game, learning the playbook, understanding movements, and it's it'd be, a, it'd be a big stretch to see someone <laughs> make it into the NFL as a wide receiver. But you never know. You never know. You, never know. you do, you never know. Well, mate, I... Um I thank you so much for your time. It's quite precious, especially week one. You're a busy man, and uh, we're both very passionate about NFL, and I'm sure there's a lot of others out there. But, um, yeah, your story's incredible. I appreciate you sharing it, and uh, I could ask you another 1,000 questions. But we'll wait for episode, uh, well, BG2, because I've got plenty more questions, but I want to hold you up. So thanks so much, mate. And uh, look at that. First, first, Tommy Talks in Style. Episode one with the goat. Tommy, thanks for having me. I look forward to the fun and banter that those American Aces is going to bring this year. Appreciate you pulling it all together. And good luck to you, not only with your fantasy team, but with Tommy Talks, mate. Chat soon. Done. Thanks, mate.